Luke chapter 7. Why don't you follow along as I read this passage from the New American Standard Bible. Soon afterward, beginning in verse 11, Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. As we've been uh, studying Luke's gospel, I I hope one of the things that has kind of begun to fill out in your mind is an understanding of how inspiration of Scripture works. Uh, You know, the Scripture says, uh, for example, that holy men spoke as they were moved by God. And Paul writes and says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. He breathed it out. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. Now, the reality is, is that God did not dictate the Bible to the writers. But rather, he came upon them in such a way that filling their minds and and, uh, filling their hearts with uh, goals and motives and guiding their writing, he, he inspired them to write. And then as they wrote, he protected the writing so that what we have is God's truth, accurate uh, and and fully trustworthy and inspired. But the concept of dictation is not there. As a consequence, um, the writers have a sense of their own objectives. Uh, You know, I'm not sure that each one of them ever thought, well, I think I'll sit down and write an inspired gospel. Uh, I I think they rather had in mind, I have some things I want to share, and I'm going to sit down and put them down for the benefit of the church or whomever the audience is. And God so used them in such a way that the church recognized, oh, this is special. You know, this is a very special writing. Well, Luke has some goals. His goals differ a little bit. Uh, from the other gospel writers, and uh, he tells the story with certain objectives in mind that help bring out the points he's trying to make. One of the things that I've mentioned to you before about Luke's gospel and also the book of Acts is that more than any other New Testament writer, Luke is really tuned in uh, to the work and the ministry and the significance of the women associated with with the ministry of Christ and recipients of the ministry of Christ. Luke uh, gives more attention 
to Jesus' interaction with women than any other uh, gospel or New Testament writer. Um, and that's kind of a significant point, because the story that we're going to look at this morning, and I use the word again in the best sense of the, the narrative, the event that we're going to look at this morning, is really about a woman. It's not about resurrection. It's not about the dead being raised. It's really a story about a woman who has a very specific need. The other thing that we realize is, as we look ahead a little bit and see that the next event we're going to consider is when John the Baptist sends his disciples back to Jesus and, and, and he asks this question, are you the one? John has been going through some terrible things in his own mind He's trying to make an assessment, and he sends his disciples with the very significant question, are you the promised one, or should we look for someone else? And Luke is leading us to the conclusion to answer that question based on Old Testament Scripture. Here are the things he is doing. Here is his ministry. Here is his work. And so he's setting us up. Uh, for that question to be posed and for the answer to be given. And so that's uh, kind of some of the background behind this story this morning. You remember last week we looked at the centurion's servant and how Jesus was able to heal that person, that servant, from a distance without even being present. The centurion being a Roman, uh, i.e. the enemy, and sending for help to Jesus, and then saying, you don't even have to come here. Uh, I, I know uh, something about authority, and I know you have it. And, and you can speak the word, and my servant will be healed. And that story was about authority. It was about a centurion and his sixth slave, but... Really, it was a story about authority and the fact that this centurion recognized Jesus' uh, amazing authority in the realm of, of uh, the heavenlies and even over sickness and the powers of darkness. So, as we look at uh, this story this morning, we're told that Jesus was approaching a city called Nain. Now, Nain was about a day's journey south from Capernaum, about six miles south from uh, Nazareth, where Jesus' hometown was. And as they're approaching the city, the scripture says his disciples and a large crowd are with him, that they approach another crowd leaving the city. And it turns out it's a funeral procession. Uh, can you get that scene in your mind, the very arid, open, uh, kind of deserty area of the Middle East? Uh, there's a city that they're coming up to. There's a dusty path. There's a group behind Jesus following as they're going uh, toward this city. And then out of the gates of the city come uh, some men carrying... Uh, on their shoulders or to the side, uh, a litter in which lies a dead man. And walking beside that is a woman who is crying her heart out. Uh, 
and around her are some of the townspeople. And you begin to take in the scene, and it doesn't take but a few seconds to sweep over that scene and, and kind of see what's going on, that um, someone has died. This woman is obviously very closely connected. I don't know how soon it was in the event that Jesus and the disciples became aware that it was a widowed woman or that this was her only son. I mean, this is information that, that unfolds at some point in the story. But I want to give you some background on the predicament of widows in that period of time because it factors heavily into this event. Widows in particular were in dire straits economically in the first testament in the New Testament era. And they have been in many other cultures at many other times of the world. God did not intend that to be the case. We'll see in a moment there are many, many scriptures from the Old Testament about care of the widows and orphans. But the fact is that women in history in general have been in a class of society that did not afford them as many uh, economic opportunities, if any. Um, and so if you were a widow in the first century in the Middle East, you couldn't just go out and get a job at McDonald's or Walmart or somewhere and, and make an income. They didn't have any such places. There were no Social Security widow's benefits. Uh, there was no life insurance. Um, basically, there was no way for these women in this situation to, to be cared for. And so if, if a woman found herself bereft of husband, she depended on her family to take care of her uh, economically. It was an agrarian culture for the most part. Uh, there were some carpenter shops and tanning shops and things like that, but... But largely, it was an agrarian culture, family businesses, that kind of thing, family farms and parcels. And so um, the idea was to absorb the family into the greater community. And uh, if a woman's husband died and she had children, particularly sons, um, they carried on the inheritance in the family business. The women didn't even inherit the property. It went to the oldest son or to the sons, and after that it went to uncles or something. <laughs> they did not get it. And, and so as long as there was a son alive or, or children alive, then they would carry on the family um, needs and she would participate and her needs would be cared for in the context of the broader family unit. But what if you have no children? Or what if the children die? Now you have no inheritance. You have no property. You have no way to go get a job. You have no other family to connect to. You have no way to make a living. 
the, the destitution and impoverishment of a woman in those circumstances was dire indeed. God did not intend for his people to make it so. You read Exodus, you read Deuteronomy, you read a number of Old Testament passages, and I've given you a number of them in your study outline. God was very concerned about widows and orphans. He wanted to be sure that Israel always cared for widows and orphans in their midst. He never wanted them to be uh, left destitute like that. But the fact is, when did Israel ever bother to keep the law at any point? And when did they just revert to the common cultural uh, influences around them? Uh, and so uh, the, the reality is, is that in spite of God's instructions, very often there was no care or provision for women who were in this situation, or for their smaller children, the orphans. There was just simply no care. That's why the New Testament, and, and you think of James, what is pure religion? Pure religion undefiled is this, to care for widows and orphans. This is very uppermost in God's mind. He wants us to be compassionate people. Um, and he, he uh, ensured that there would be protection among his people, but they ignored it. And so the reality is, is that this woman who has now lost her only child, her only son, has not only experienced the grief and the heartbreak of the death of her son, but she is going through the reality and awareness even in his final days of illness or maybe he had an accident or whatever it was but if she had time to think about it and could see this coming you know uppermost in her mind alongside the grief was what am I going to do how am I going to live and the fact that there were townspeople with her does not mean that they cared all that much it was common in the culture to accompany and have the big days of mourning and whatever. But when it was all over, I mean, you know, people say today, when the funeral's over and everybody goes home, people forget. It was never more true than in that period of time. And so as she's going along, and, and, and to add kind of the insult to the injury. In our culture, we have pretty well insulated ourselves from death. Even in these days of hospice, if a person dies at home, it's not very long before the funeral director shows up. You know, the, the hospice nurse comes and certifies the death, and then the funeral director's right on her heels, and the body's taken away. And then the next thing we see is, you know, this well-dressed corpse that's embalmed and everything smells nice and we have kind of insulated ourselves from from the harsh realities but in the Middle East in the uh, conditions of heat and humidity and no air conditioning and no funeral parlors 
you went from death to burial in a very short period of time, usually within the day. And so this son has died, and all of this has come crashing upon this woman as they have come to carry her son to his burial. This is the scene. And as we read the story, we're told that as Jesus comes upon this procession and takes in the scene and begins to make sense of it, the reality washes over him of what's happened. And here's this woman, perhaps she's by herself. There's no man beside her. There's no other family right around her. There are townspeople, there are uh, litter carriers, and there's this woman just sobbing in her grief. And he sees what's going on. And Luke says he has compassion. He has compassion. I think it would not be inappropriate to say his heart is breaking. Suddenly, his heart is breaking for this situation. And he says to her, don't cry. I don't know about you, I've stood with many families at the funeral home during the visitation. I've been in that group as my family members have died, and people say some really dumb things in a visitation line. I mean, you just listen to comments, and every once in a while it's like, did you even turn your brain on before you opened your mouth? It's amazing what people will say. But to go up to this woman and say to her, here you are a stranger, and to say, don't cry, is like the height of absurdity. I mean, she must have thought, what? Only I'm not sure that's exactly the way it came across. We read it that way. But I had an interesting flashback this morning. Have you ever had the experience, uh, children particularly grip your heart, in the midst of a very real trauma. I don't mean they've just had a boo-boo in the playground, but there's a real trauma, and, and they're crying like their heart is going to break. You know, and you know how your heart goes out to them. I had a flashback this morning as I was driving in, you know how the morning sun is, and uh, sometimes in traffic it can blind you, and I happened to be turning a corner, I was looking right into the sun, and it was like, whoa, I can't see a thing. In fact, all the cars in front of me just disappeared into vague shapes. And I was thinking about this story, and it reminded me of when I was about four or five years old. And um, I was adopted when I was almost about three, so I was older I had already experienced kind of being passed around a little bit. I had experienced some loss. Finally, I'm adopted into this, into this family. And my dad was a railroad passenger agent. And it meant on the weekends, Saturdays and Sundays, Sunday afternoons, he had to go down to Union Station and meet the passenger trains coming in 
they traded weekends, and he had to make sure everyone had a safe trip and there weren't any problems or whatever. It took about an hour to go down and meet the trains and make sure everyone was okay and come home. And so it kind of became a family tradition over time that um, sometimes he would take one of us boys with him or uh, the whole family would go and we'd stop for ice cream or maybe go out to eat on the way home. It kind of became one of those things. And so uh, on this particular occasion, uh, my dad had asked me to go with him and um, they didn't have seat belts in those days. And he's on his way down to Union Station. It's late in the afternoon, the sun's going down. All of a sudden, it's one of those blinding streets in Tampa. And um, he drives through a red light. He had no idea what color it was, couldn't even see it. And there's a crash, and he, he has an accident. And, I, you know, I remember being thrown into the floor of this big old Chevy, you know, and bumping my head on the dash uh, board on the way down, which is why they called it a dashboard. But um, I bumped my head on the way down, and nothing serious happened to any of us in terms of injury. But all of a sudden, I realized somehow that my dad was in an accident, and it was his fault. I don't know how I connected that, but I put that together. And somebody said, we have to wait for the police to come. Now, I had seen TV, and I knew that when police showed up, there was a gunfight. And they carried guns, and the only reason they had guns was to shoot people. And in my four-year-old mind, the police were coming to shoot my daddy. I mean, I figured it out. And he's holding me in his arms, and I am sobbing. And I am crying out, please don't let them shoot you. Please don't let them shoot you. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. I mean, the scene is like, you know, I look back on it and I say, wow, I feel sorry for myself. I mean, <laughs> that was just one of those situations, you know, that was just so heartrending. And my dad is saying, don't cry, don't cry, it's going to be okay, they're not going to shoot me, don't cry. And I'm wailing, and, he, you know, and he's got this accident to take care of, and he's got this four-year-old in his arms just having conniptions over this. And the goal of everyone was to comfort me. And I think as Jesus looked at that scene, that what came out of him was, oh, don't cry, don't cry. It's going to be okay. Don't cry. I've come. It's going to be okay. All that compassion to say, I'm going to help you. And then he turns to the casket and touches it. Whoa! Unclean. He has violated all the taboos. The people carrying it stop. And Jesus speaks to the, to the dead man and says, Young man, I say to you, arise. And as he speaks to him, the young man opens his eyes, sits up and speaks to Jesus. And he helps him off and delivers him to the mother. Whoa! 
the scripture says the crowd is struck with awe. You can only imagine, right? What would you experience in that situation? We're going to bury this guy. And he just got up and started talking. And all of a sudden, this woman's, all of her issues are solved in that moment. She has her son back. She has the love of her life back. The the one remaining family member. She has her future back. Her life has been transformed in this instant because of the compassion that Jesus has for her in this situation. Did you notice that he speaks to the corpse? Because even though the body is dead, that young man is somewhere. There's a gospel group that has written a song about the raising of Lazarus and one of the lines in their imagination, I don't know if you can support this with exegesis, but it's kind of an interesting line, It says he spoke his name so all the dead would not rise. (laughs) They're there somewhere. Lazarus come forth. And he speaks to this young man. He didn't even know his name. I say to you, young man, arise. And he comes fully to life because he is existing somewhere. And now he is brought back into his body and he is... Lord Jesus is Lord of life. He is Lord of death. He is Lord of all. He is the Master. And his heart is filled with compassion. And and if there's one message in this story that should grip our hearts and stand out is the Lord Jesus Christ is compassionate. He is filled with tender mercy and loving kindness and compassion for our need. When we are sharing Christ sometimes with other people, they want to point out the, the objection between, oh, look at the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. He killed everybody back then. and now, you know. No, no. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There were dramatic means necessary to preserve a people for the coming of Christ to save the world. And he is a God of judgment. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of sinless holiness who requires payment. There's no question about that part of his character. But he is also a God who cares for widows and orphans who is full of tenderness and loving kindness, he says, I am the Lord, I do not change. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in revealing himself to the disciples, Jesus says these very important things, such as, if you have seen me, you have seen my Father. And I don't do anything on my own initiative. I do the things I see the Father doing. Uh, These are the things that I uh, carry out as His work. And when you see Jesus encountering this funeral procession, you see the heart of God reaching out in the circumstances. You know, every time I see Jesus in, in a scene of death, there are two things that stand out to me. 
how he enters emotionally into the heartbreak and loss of the people. You remember him at the tomb of Lazarus? Shortest verse in the Bible. Maybe if you're into trivia, that's how you remember it. Jesus wept. And preachers through the ages have just done a murderous job trying to come out with all kind of cutesy explanations for that. He was crying because Mary and Martha didn't have faith in him. Oh, good grief. Hardly anybody had faith in him, really. That was nothing new. He was crying because they were crying. He was heartbroken with them. Lazarus has died. And it touched his heart and caused him to weep. Even though he knew what he was about to do, he responded to their need in like manner. God always enters into our grief, our sadness, our sorrow. He is always present. The other thing that impresses me about Jesus in the midst of death is I think there's a certain anger there. Death in Corinthians is called an enemy. He hates it. Never intended us to experience it. Wasn't supposed to be a part of our lives. It is the consequence of sin and rebellion. And to God it is heartbreaking And he loves us so much, he's done something about it. By sending Jesus Christ, God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whosoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is a resurrection. And friends, you know, we don't see people raised from the dead, necessarily. It does happen, still. I don't have any doubt about that. I have eyewitness testimony of missionaries in other parts of the world that have given accounts of people who have come back from the dead in the name of Jesus. I have no reason to doubt them. They're not sensationalists. They're not liars. We don't see that in our culture so much, maybe because we don't have much faith. But the reality is not everyone is raised. Not everyone was raised in Jesus' day. There were far more funerals than there were resurrections. But the truth of the matter is, God still comes to us and and says, it will be okay. It will be okay. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. And there will be a resurrection. And there will be a reunion. And I have done something about this. And meanwhile, my heart is with you. My heart is with you. I feel your pain. But I have done something about it. Isn't that amazing? that wonderful truth? This is the hope that we give to each other for comfort. We do not sorrow like those who are hopeless. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We have hope. 
And when we see Jesus reaching out to this widowed woman in this scene, we see a picture of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit coming to us, reaching out to us, caring for us. We do not bear our grief alone. We have one who enters into it with us. Do you know God that way? you know his loving kindness? Not up here. I think all of us agree with, this, with the sermon this morning. Do you know it here? Do you know that he's the one who comes? That he's the one who enters in? That he shares your pain? He is the God who is present in this moment. Praise his name. Praise his name. Thank you, Father, for your word to us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who reveals your heart and who in the flesh demonstrates this amazing compassion. Thank you for doing something about our predicament. Thank you for caring for widows and orphans and the helpless. Thank you for loving us, Lord. And I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you in this way, that you would come to them right now and draw their heart to you. And give them encouragement. Build their faith. You are not far from us. And you are easily found by those who long for you. Draw near to us in Jesus' name. Amen.